Thanks for clicking your way to the Noises Down the Hall podcast. I'm Trevor Prozeski, the producer and host. In these conversations, you'll hear songwriters, musicians, and artists from in and around Charlottesville, Virginia, reminiscing on their experiences as teenagers and what I like to call their artistic origin stories. From a larger perspective, it's really about creativity and how to encourage and foster it in young people. As a longtime high school teacher, I've witnessed the formative years of countless creative young people, and it's always been a part of my mission to support and encourage the growth of young artists. I hope these conversations will be informative, but more importantly, I think they'll be fun and entertaining, and they'll help us get to know the people who make our local music scene as vibrant and as beautiful as it is. Welcome to Noises Down the Hall. Let's get to it. at the Noises Down the Hall podcast. I'm Trevor Brzezowski, the host, and I am joined today by my first guest who was uh, willing to come over here and be my guinea pig of sorts. Uh, I am joined by Gene Osborne. Some of you know him as the singer-songwriter frontman of the band We Are Star Children. Uh, some others uh, might know him as the assistant director for tech integration at Albemarle Ooh, High School. Yes. And that makes him uniquely uh, uniquely suited uh, for the conversation uh, that we're going to have here on Noises Down the Hall. Welcome, Gene. How are you? I'm great. Trevor, uh, can you walk me through the pronunciation of your last name? Like, how do you describe that to people? Because I have always read it and been consistently confused. Perjuski. Perjuski. Phonetically. Perjuski. Perjuski. P-R-J-U-S-K-I. So the Z-Y is the part that trips people. I Perjuski. I love it. Yeah, yeah, that's the that's the American pronunciation. But I'm not going to phone it in like your your students. No, that's Mr. Gonna, no. no, call me P. Well, you know you can call me Trevor too, because like ah uh, Przeski, hello Przeski. We're friends and all. Yeah, that's good. I tell my kids after they graduate they can call me Trevor, and most of them no, they just, don't. Well, most of them actually start like half of them start like 11th grade. Okay, you know, so it's just it's it goes. Przeski, I've been meaning to ask you that question. How long have we known each other? How long have we known each other? Eight years. Rock and Rap Academy. Yeah, but I knew you before. That. Townies. I knew you before that because I met Photography, you. Photography, Claw, Billy Hunt. Yeah, because I, I. I think I met you through Brian Weimer. Oh, Brian Weimer. Back when we were doing Mantra and the weird Animals, just and raw, stuff. just men in this town, just doing yeah. our best. Yeah, just yeah. creative. Oh, and then I found out you were a teacher and a coach. Oh, we hung out outside of uh, Buddhist Biker Bar one time. That's when I yes, was like, did. and I, I thought you were, I, know, I knew you as famous. You knew me as famous, a famous uh, coach, an instructional oh, coach. Oh, oh, right. I was like, dang, this, educational service. I was like, this guy got some pedagogy. <laughs> That's right, man. I could, I could edge speak all day long. That's what I liked about you initially, and now we just 
Yeah, just locals. Just work buddies. Yeah. 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 It's all good. It's all good. Got the dad game going. I want to talk. That's true. We've, yeah, we've had got a, the lot, dad we've game. a lot more in common since we've met. Yeah, so, I agree. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk a little bit before we, we get into the, the big combo here about uh, Star Children coming out of uh, a, a long, what seemed like an endless quarantine mm-hmm. uh, in which we couldn't do live music and couldn't get together. Uh, what's going on with the band? What's coming up? So we we really went after friendship. I'm not going to lie. Uh, we knew that for us to preserve the show and to preserve the songs, we needed to preserve our, our relationships, our friendships. So uh, we, I, I had a ball early in the pandemic doing a band Zooms, and we just did a few of them, but man, they were fun. So every one of the Zooms, I secretly asked different bandmates to prepare like a thing to present to the group. So one read a poem, the other sang an acapella song, the other read from a book. Uh, it actually, uh, one of uh, our singer Edwina, she actually wrote a poem for the night, so a custom poem for our Zoom. So next thing I know, like the world's under pandemic, but here I am with my star family, hearing a poem written about us in that moment. So that was that 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 really went after friendship. We potted up a bit, so some of us would uh, get together, uh, and we actually found an incredible space to socially or physically distant. Uh, rehearse. We were in huge round circles in this local ballroom and had a great time. Uh, honestly, we took it, our, uh, it was creative, but it was also technical. So what we used the time to do was to deconstruct the songs and to go after arrangements and the nuance between the guitar, the bass, the drums, the keys, just drill down. We used it as a chance to drill down. And I'll tell you on this uh, back end, we've uh, had a great live show recently. We've been rehearsing whole band live, full sound stage. God, we grew over the pandemic. It's, but, I, but I'm going to come back to my first point, Trevor. It was the friendships. We had to preserve the relationships. And that's what preserved the work, if that makes sense. It does. And I, and I imagine it's probably, you know, while some people see longevity in bands as, as sometimes a, a problem because, you know, f- familiarity breeds contempt and blah, blah, blah. I, I think with you guys, it just seems like the longer you all have been together and played together, the closer you've become. The more, like you said, the more of a family you've become. Um, and it and it translates. Uh, it translates on stage. I was at the show uh, at Potter's and, and for, for, uh, I was impressed with, I mean, obviously I was impressed with the level of energy. It was a hot day. Uh, and I was impressed with the level of energy that you guys came on with and then just maintained throughout the entire show. It, it, it would have, it seemed like you guys had been playing shows every weekend for the last year and a half instead of, you know, hanging out sure. in, a, in a ballroom and playing to no one um but but it was that was really impressive and i think it, it just kind of it's a testament to like how close you guys are and how much you operate off of each other and share that energy yeah, when you stage. see your best friend having the time of her or his life i mean uh min martin our keyboard player he screamed at the end of the night that was so fun like, like i mean it was like <laughs> He's my buddy. I mean, we, we all sort of, again, like I think when relationships are strong, when you're vulnerable with each other, when you know each other so well, uh, when you work hard together, that's the thing about the work we did, Trevor, over the pandemic, was it wasn't, it's not, it's not that fun to get technical and, and to get surgical with the arrangements, the dynamics, creative uh, group process with creative ideas. People, you know, can bristle in those environments, but I think we're really aligned around the work. So we all want to. We all want those songs to be opulent, full, anthemic, like stupid fun, 
And then if it means going back and playing that bridge again, or going back and playing that intro again, and we know it's going to translate to stage, and we have the support of our friendships to get through that kind of design process or that kind of design by committee, which I know can lead to uh, you know, some tension sometimes, but nah, not, not with the band. Uh, we got to keep the North Star, that stage show, our friendships, those songs, those melodies, drive it hard. I don't know. It's just where, too fun. Where might people be able to see Star Children so that, in the summer months? So we are, uh, we got a, a small private show, a big private show, but I hate to, um, well, let, let me just say this. In October, we're going to play a centennial celebration at the Fry Springs Beach Club with Chamomile and Whiskey, as well as Love Cannon. And these are party bands. Uh, so if you don't know those acts, just know that I am pinching myself that Love Cannon and We Are Star Children get to finally play a show together, that Chamomile and Whiskey again get to, uh, we've, had, we've had historic shows together, so this is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, and those are party bands. Did you say it's a private show? No, no, no. That's, oh, that's the, the big one. Show. October 2nd, Fry Springs Beach Club. Okay. Uh, for those in Charlottesville. And uh, yeah, I mean, I could not, I mean, and again, just bring a bunch of friends to the stage and uh, just be ready to roll. It's going to be great. It sounds great. That yeah. sounds fantastic. Um, so let's get into, let, let's talk a little bit about uh, what I brought you here to talk about. Um, and, and really the, 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 uh, this idea came from, I mean, I have worked uh, for years with young artists in, in a high school setting uh, and have been fascinated by, the process and the diversity of ways that that process happens with young people. And of course I always reflect on my own experience as a, as a kid uh, who had an artistic temperament and, and, and kind of knew pretty early uh, that, that that's what I wanted to do. Uh, but I'm always really interested to hear from other artists and other people uh, who, who create art to talk about that period in their life, that emergent period in their life. Um, and, and also to maybe inform a little bit about what parents and educators can do or might take from these conversations about, you know, if you have that creative kid in your classroom or in your home, you know, how do you, what do you, you know, what, what's your best shot or how do you, you know, so, so I really just wanted to start mainly with you. And I, and I want to ask you first, if you can describe, uh, f for us. Who was Gene Osborne at 16? I was, uh, grew up in the suburbs, upstate New York, outside of Albany, New York. And I had uh, some friends who just got... So, you know, there's the Misfits crew. And I, I sometimes think, like, you know, music chooses you a little bit. And being sort of um, having an inclination towards creativity, that's not necessarily a choice. So, I mean, parents, I think it's hard because you're like, oh, I want to raise a creative child. I mean, a lot of it, I think, has to do with giving them enough time to themselves to find out if they're weird or not, you know? And you can't make them weird. And I think uh, some, some of what's led to... The, the friends I have who are virtuosic players, they're weird. They've, they need, they've got an itch to scratch, and that, scratch, that, that itch is only scratched by playing, right? So, how do you know, I, I felt akin to the weirder of my friends early, you know? And I was like, oh, that... I'm 12 and I'm 13. That's that's the person I want to be around. We're growing our bangs out now. Uh, oh, what's this? Who's this Robert Smith guy? You know. So and that felt right to me. And then when I got a little older, I was like, Oh, my friends, they got a metal band. I'm gonna hang out in the basement while they play. And one of my friends was an incredible shredder. Early 14, 15, shredded like no one's business. Great singer. This guy Jason could sing, and I just wanted to be 
in that basement on the ground listening to him. I wasn't playing at the time. I just knew that I had a disposition to the, uh, the weirder of my friends. And I knew that that felt better than sitting with all the, the preppy kids. You know, I mean, it's really a binary as a kid. So um, I never thought of myself as a talented artist. I still don't, but I, I, I didn't at the time see myself as a player. I was a fan of them. At the same time, I'd grown up listening to my, so my mother in, in the Catholic church I grew up in, it was a small Lithuanian Catholic church in Albany, New York. We lived in a black neighborhood with a small Lithuanian like section of the street. And there was probably about 30 folks who would go to this one church and my mother was the organ player. So I was always around players. My mother, I would go, I was the only altar boy and my mother was the only organist and there was one priest and there was one person who assisted the priest. That was it. So my mother had a gig every week. In my family, there was someone had a gig each week. That was normal to gig, right? Now the gig was very mathematic, uh, mathematical, a little cerebral. She wasn't shredding. She was playing the organ. And in my house, there was an upright piano. I took lessons, but still I never felt weird about it. I just felt like music was normal and having a gig each week was normal. When my friends started to play and I saw what rock and roll did, for me as a, as a person, my identity was shifted when I saw them play hard, sing hard, get gigs. Um, I was really enthralled by it. Um, so uh, short, long story shorter, I'm hoping to keep this short. I went to a crafts sale in downtown Albany. It was a crafts fair. And this uh, gentleman had a bamboo flute stand set up with all these different bamboo flutes. And I was really into the show Kung Fu, really into it. And I was really into like uh, um, the esoteric. Like it was as, at 15, it was really like interesting to me that there was like these esoteric experiences. Like I thought it was cool that you could like uh, kind of transcend like this this world that we were in. And the show Kung Fu was like interesting to me because it was like uh, martial arts. I was big in the martial arts as a kid, but then there was this con this intersection with martial arts and music because he would walk around with a bamboo flute and play it. I was like, oh, stop. <laughs> I, I'm, I mean, at the time, I'd actually earned a black belt in the karate school, uh, this, one of these Japanese karate schools in New York, and I was into it, but I was also not a jock. So I was like, oh, you're going to combine martial arts and, and bamboo flutes? Sign me up. So I went to the stand, and this guy, I still remember it, Trevor, the way he played this thing was almost unreal to me. I couldn't believe the sound he made. I couldn't believe the way his fingers moved uh, in unison, and I was just obsessed uh, as a kid, I loved to go after skills I couldn't do. So I got real into juggling for a minute. I can't do it. Let me do it. You know, these weird things. So I was like, oh, I'm going to be able to move my fingers like him. When I, when I, and, and I went back the next year with 60 bucks, and I bought this bamboo flute. And what had happened was I ended up playing at a bowling alley on Stairway to Heaven with my friend's metal band. And I was like... Oh my God! I was like, I just like found this niche, this perfect so that niche. That was your start, the the, the the flautist for a heavy metal band. Yeah, yeah, straight up, straight up. And I've got <laughs> more stories of how the flute brought me through teenage years. But I moved to guitar early too, because that was also fun. So if you're around the weird, we used to come home from school, and it was way more fun than playing like you know Nintendo, whatever's going on. We would grab guitars, and we would go behind my friend's house, and we would play G C G D. 
uh, straight just for a while, and someone would try to solo. But man, just feeling that, the waterfall of a tuned guitar coming over your body. I had a, uh, this real wild kid from my high school. He was from a different part of the town, a rougher part of the town, and he came over to my house. So I was like, I had this rough kid over at my house. I had this guitar, and he was playing these three chords, and I said to him, you know, what, what song is that? And he goes, I wrote it. And I was like, what do you mean you wrote it? He's like, well, I know, I know how to play the major and minor chords, and I put these together. And it, Trevor, it blew my mind. I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not a Pixie song. That's not something that you just like learned you from a friend. Make up you your made own it. It was, chord it was almost as if in that moment I realized that you could write. I didn't even know it. I was like, oh, let's just play this uh, more than words song we've been working on. You know what I mean? Like, for those of you who don't know it, like, if you know that, you know what I'm talking about. Because it was like, that was, that was a big deal. And those were those chords, G, C, G, D. And you just, you know, roll it through and everyone's playing and hanging out. Uh, so I was jamming with a friend soon after that. And I said, okay, if I can just write. And I was playing G, C, G. And I was going back and forth. And, and you know, that's real major. And at a... No one, there was no roadmap, and I switched to an A minor chord, and the whole thing, it was just me and one guitarist, it was late at his parents' house, so they weren't there, we were hanging out, and when I switched to an A minor, it was the, it was the first time I've, through my own agency, changed, almost I like went to a B part, right? I went to another part, and it was like the jam sat down so hard, and the feeling I got through my whole body and what it did to his playing, the way he started to shred harder, I was like, oh, my God. I just wrote that. Like, I just, I played an A minor. Like, it was <laughs> like, you know, it was a big moment. It kind of connected to all of it. So, you know, I moved from flute, but I was around all these guitar players, and there was this whole thing. Uh, so those were my first early experiences, realizing what jam could be what writing could be, what music after school could be. You know what I mean? That's great. You actually just uh, answered uh, like three of the next questions, um, <laughs> which is which is great because really they're all they're kind of connected. Because one of the things that I uh, that that I want to get to uh, with anybody who comes here to talk to me is sort of uh, how important uh, that cultural and creative inheritance is uh, from from our parents and from our community and clearly it sounds like you know your, your mom playing in church was uh you know that was the the, the first time you saw someone that you knew performing mm -hmm. uh, you know and, and that's yeah. such a, a huge impact and i imagine even just being part of that church um you know church for me was was where i became an actor um because, because like yourself i started off as an altar boy uh and then graduated up to lector where I was reading, right on, uh, you yeah. know, reading the, the, the gospel, reading the scriptures, you know, in front of the whole church. I was the youngest lector. I think I was 13. I was like the youngest lector ever, like in, in my church. Um, and, but then that, that's where I like, I'm standing up here by myself in front of these people and they're listening to every word I say. Yeah. And, and like, it wasn't enough to just read it, you know, yeah. I had to read it. I had to, I wanted them to feel it mm -hmm. you know <laughs> so yeah that performative aspect came in and i think that that church experience you know for a lot of people is is the first kind of performative experience that they have yeah, and, and trevor i don't want to pivot too hard to to um to teaching um at all but one of the things that those like getting ready for church as a seven eight year old going into the back putting the robes on getting the incense lighting it you know, even getting to use matches and stuff as a kid. It was just cool. But it was also you were getting ready for the show. I know it's not 
the show, but there was still something in me, like to, to your point, that I liked about knowing that I've, I've got a, a quote unquote gig tomorrow. I'm getting ready for something. Oh, now I'm getting dressed for the gig. Oh, now I'm getting the stage ready. Oh, now I'm out there. Oh, now people are watching. Like, I know it's not uh, music, performing music. And teaching isn't performing music, but I get that same sort of rush. Like, oh, I got, it's happening tomorrow. We're going on a field trip. What do I need to do to get ready? You know, there's like, and then when we play these shows, you know, in town, we play the, Jeff, you know, you play the Jefferson Theater. It's like, okay, all right, what do I need to eat today so I'm ready tomorrow? All right, let's get to bed. Let's get ready. You know, it's, the game is on. It's coming. So right. there's little traces of what I experienced as a young child, even if getting ready for church was a thing. You know, it's like, I think when you've got the, that itch to scratch as a performer, as a teacher, uh, as anybody who wants to get up and represent something to the group, maybe it's leadership, I don't know. But uh, there's something about that experience that actually does connect to the, the, the rock and roll stage. I'm going to be honest with you. It's not... It's not that different in some ways. Transference of all of those feelings and all of those those skills and techniques is is pretty clear. Um, I have a similar story. I had a I had a student uh, who was in my first period English class back when I was teaching American literature. Uh, he was in my first period class, and I was lecturing uh, on that day. I, I believe about the transcendentalists, you know, Thoreau and Emerson, and and giving my little background story about them. And uh, he sat through the class and then he came back third period and he's like hey i you know i have a study hall and i don't feel like sitting in there do you mind if i just sit in here and sit in on your on your class and i'm like sure so he came in and sat down went through the whole lecture again on the transcendentalist and at the end of the class he was like that was amazing it was exactly the same as first period like even the jokes <laughs> were exactly the same and i said Th four shows a day, every day. Yeah, <laughs> yes, hundred percent. Just putting on the putting on that 100%. show. Hundred <laughs> percent. So there's there's freedom within the constraints of that writing. So you write the lesson, you write the song, and this is what I've been experiencing. Um, so early as a teenager, I I really was pretty adamantly opposed to structured songs. I thought that improvisation was the gold standard, and I was fascinated at about 16 with classical Indian music and there was a really cool like classical Indian music scene in Albany New York and I would go to these house concerts for sitar and I had friends these these friends these girlfriends in high school who were Hindu and I would hang out with them all the time those were my after-school friends like I, we, we, we would hang out and go to their uh, temple and then these house concerts and to watch an Indian sitar player early with the, and then I've shared, you know, my love for the traverse flute and the bamboo flute. All of that came together in this really interesting way that made me actually early judge song structure. I, did, I believed that everything needed to be completely visceral, completely open-ended. And that, that's interesting because that kind of, in a way, kind of brings, brings me back to this idea of how your learning environment, that structured learning environment of high school, did you chafe against that in, in, in other ways, like academically? Did you have any problem with that structure and fitting within, or did it, did it add something to you? My friends were taking chorus, and I was like, what are you doing? Uh, band students, orchestra students. I couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand it. I'd go home and bury myself in a basement uh, where my friend had a metal band. Like, that was it. I just felt, you know, you know how teenagers can be. Uh, I just really revolted against it. I remember, so I'd, I'd bought that bamboo flute and I'd started playing it. So I knew how to blow and I knew how to play. 
And there was a kid who'd come out of the orchestra room with a traverse flute. It was the first time I played an actual three, you know, the, the kind of flutes you got to put them together. You open the case, you put them together. And I'd never played one. And uh, she came out. I said, can I play that thing? And I put it together. And I felt like an animal in the hallway. It was like a visceral. I mean, it was a really powerful experience because the tone off an actual traverse flute, not a bamboo flute, because I was sludging through these homemade. I had two of them. One was a large pentatonic flute, which was super hard to play. I still have it. In fact, I use it as it's a, next to my bed. It's so big. If I have an intruder in the house, I'm going to pick it up. <laughs> so I'm going to attack him with it. No, yeah, it's, it's literally my baseball bat. Uh, and then I had this smaller uh, D major flute that was smaller, a little more nimble that I could actually play. I had a really small A major flute uh, that I brought to uh, one of my high school picnics, and I had a really great jam experience on that one. Uh, but when I played that metal traverse flute, uh, more of an Ian Anderson kind of toll-like, uh, Jethro Tull sound came out, and I was like, what was that? Because it was so, like, I mean, the tinny quality to it, overblowing the way that the actual pads allowed me to move more nimbly across the flute. I was sold, so I ended up just getting a beater, one of those, when I went to college. So I'm, you're still a kid. So rather than bring a guitar to college, that, that moment I brought, a, I brought a, a, an actual student flute to college, and that became my sled for the next many years. Because you know every, every 12th person's gonna bring an acoustic guitar to a house party or right. a potluck. But who's gonna bring <laughs> a traverse flute? Freak with the and, then flute. If you, and then to get, to get <laughs> weird at these parties, these house parties on flute, it was awesome. And remember, I'm still not playing song structures. I'm just going, you know? So that was also really fun. And as a performer, you like attention. So you had a potluck, people get guitars out, you get a flute out, and then you uh, do your version of slaying or going hard. You know, I had no technique. I still have no technique. But, you know, you bring rock spirit to it. And those were kind of, again, uh, improvisational moments that dovetailed with my high school experiences. Um, and still brought me to music. That's great. And, and again, you answered like three of the, you know, three of the <laughs> next four questions. Um, but really, I, that's part of, you know, I guess the, the question that I've written here, and I think you've answered it already beautifully, but I want to bring the question up again. Um, what was the origin or, or what's the origin story of your creative self-awareness? And and you've kind of talked about it already about that basement floor and those and those metal kids just rocking out. But when did you start considering yourself as an artist okay. first and foremost? Sure. Like when you introduce yourself to people, you know, yeah. I'm an artist. Like when did that start to happen for you? So t two things, uh, and I'll be and I'll be as brief as I can. Like there was a neighborhood being built next to mine, and there were all these sewer tunnels up above the ground. They hadn't buried them yet. So I actually would go in at night, and I'd bring, uh, I think it was my D major bamboo flute. I had, you know, three of them. Uh, and they were, you know, the, again, these are your tools. You know, you got them. So I'd bring them, this one. And if I sat in a, in a spot, and if I played a certain note and then worked around a certain scale, I could feel a level of almost vibration that was, like, transcendental. You're just a 15-year-old kid, 16-year-old kid. But I was like, you know, and you're, you're maybe, as, as a, someone who identifies as a weird kid, questing for like these types of experiences, but also undeniably powerful experiences. And I would just jam by myself and I would play hard. I would play hard. I'd bleed into the second register. I'd blow as hard as I could. I'd find nuances in the melody, develop themes, go 
in and keep rattling around, you know, maybe a 30-minute session, 35-minute session as like a teenager who's just bored, doesn't want to watch TV. And then there's these weird tunnels next to your neighborhood that have cool acoustics. And then I was like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm a dude who wants to go out there. I don't want to be in the basement. I never played metal. I, did, I was not interested in being a, a dramatic a vocalist in that way, a shredder on electric guitar, a kit player on drums. No, I wanted to be in that tube playing this weird thing. So that's when I started to be weird to the weird people. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you know what I mean? Like, took it to the next level uh, in my mind. But I also somehow inherited this weird instrument uh, from the Middle East. I don't know where it came from. And I, I actually am a little embarrassed that I don't know the name of it. But I loved playing in drop D on guitar because, you know, I was doing a little bit of flute and guitar. So I actually did a lot of drop D work in probably my junior year in high school. And one of my best companions in music, uh, my friend Mark Tobin, he still plays he's in the Northwest and he's phenomenal, just still playing. Um, him and I would, you know, at night just play together. He and I started this band, uh, and it was uh, it was great. We had a tabla player, so remember I was going to all these Hindu temples and playing. So uh, our friend Sejal played tabla. He played this Middle Eastern instrument. Again, I don't know the name, and and I, I just ran into it, um, and I played drop D tuning on guitar, and we formed a band called Mr. Tithers in the marvelous way he hops on one foot. <laughs> That was the name of the band. Right? We're weird. You, you get it. You're around teenagers all the time. We're all extra large. Yeah, yeah. Just so you put the <laughs> band name on. But it was like, that was our, so we had that band for about a year. They were seniors. I was a junior. And we played some gigs, man. We played for the mayor of Albany at this one thing. We got brought in. We played at this Hindu temple. We got uh, this one dinner. We got brought in. The, oh, the League of Women Voters uh, booked us. Because <laughs> we were atmospheric. I would just play drop D, jam. Remember, I had no song structure. He would noodle on this instrument we didn't even know the name of. We just tuned, and we had a tabla player. So when we were gigging, that was my first gigging band, Mr. Tithers in the Marvelous Way He Hops on One Foot. <laughs> and we would jam and jam and jam. The whole thing was like a, maybe like an 80-minute extended thing. We would pause and then start over again. I don't even know if we changed anything structurally. Uh, but th those two experiences are when I felt like I was born as an artist and a performer going to those tunnels and then playing in this weird kind of band. I mean, it's different than playing changes uh, with your friends after school. Mm -hmm. You know, jamming on acoustic guitar is one thing, but then having this solo project mm -hmm. with no audience or having this trio with this weird band name, that's when I started to really feel like I yeah. uh, was finding myself in yeah. that early stage. My, my first band uh, in high school was called uh, Slick Old Boy. Uh, <laughs> Which which came from <laughs> came from uh, this this guy uh, that we used to watch at the bowling alley uh, in Quakertown, who and we just referred to him as as the slick old boy because he, he just had all the moves, he was the smoothest smoothest guy, and uh, so that we that was our band name. But we, we were mainly uh, cover band, you know, Clash. Covers. Would you would you play? I was the front man. I was oh, the get it? Because at the time I did not play. Yeah. All of my friends in high school, all of my best friends in high school. Uh, were guitar players and drummers, and I loved them and hung out with them. Similar to your story, um, you know, Steve Ackerman. Uh, Steve, I hope you're listening. Um, Steve Ackerman had a had a trailer out in the woods behind his mom's house, um, where we spent most of our afternoons and nights after high school. And he had uh, this beautiful uh, Tama drum kit, uh, and we would just go. And all of my friends would plug in and they would play. And I always 
believe I mean I took guitar lessons for a little while when I was when I was a little kid but it I, it didn't take and and for me somehow like playing guitar always seemed like a magic trick that I could never master I didn't understand it and I knew and because my friends were so good I was intimidated to to even try so I let them be good at that but what they couldn't do was be completely uh, unselfconscious uh, and wear really tight jeans and jump around in front of people and yeah. scream. Uh, that I could do. <laughs> yeah, I, so, get it. I get it. So I get it. That was my contribution to Slick Old Boy. Um, <laughs> is that I was the I was the front man, but that was the first uh, the first band that I was in. And uh, yeah, we I think we played a couple of graduation parties. Uh, oh a couple God. of birthday parties. Those early gigs are uh, just too and, much. And man. it was just, but they were the, they were just like the best times. I still just remember all of those times. We actually, uh, I think we, we won third place in the school talent show our our junior year. <laughs> were there or, other or rock bands in like, the talent show, or was it just no? That? We, oh, there was one other. I think there was one other rock band, but I think we came in third to like. Did you beat the other rock band? We. We did, uh, but the other, but the actual first and second place were, I think, like uh, uh, a girl roller skating while yeah, you can't, a baton. you can't mess with you that. Can't talk yeah, that. yeah, no, that's right. Uh, and I think there, there, I don't know. I kind of feel like there was a two. What was your, um, what was your like burner hit? Like, what was the song that you played with that slick old man that you knew was gonna well, slay? We we wrote a song. We wrote a couple of originals, and one of them was. Uh, a song called Slick Old Boy, which, believe it or not, was a not-so-thinly-veiled homage to BDSM. Um, you know, to, yeah. uh, as, you know, what we understood of that as high school students. Sure. Uh, but it was, but we got in a little bit of trouble for playing that one fine, at, the, at the high school assembly. Which it's a rock band, after all. Pretty rock and roll, yeah. Um, but I think we played, we played a couple of Clash covers. I kind of feel like, uh, uh, what was the... Um, I feel like there was a a foreigner song. No, there was a, a cheap trick song called "Stiff Competition" that we that we got into and and, and banged out pretty loud. Yeah, so I think it's worth noting that um, there were some uh, another band in high school. They were just great. They were just great. In fact, one of the the lead singer uh, lived in Charlottesville when I moved here and actually was in music. He was the manager for My Morning Jacket and other bands and ended up like, but he, I mean, his band Bandicoot was awesome. And I just remember, uh, them playing gigs. You know, it's a lot of, a lot of it, Trevor, is about your aspirational peers. Like the, 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 the guys who are just a little bit further along than you and you see them either, you know, playing music in their capacity different than how you play music, but still playing, playing hard and, and doing the thing that you want to do. Uh, so I remember that band playing at like a school dance. You know, I'm thinking about you guys playing and it's, oh, I can literally almost like see some of the early gigs that I either played. The, the Mr. Tithers gigs were weird. Those were weird. But like the full band thing, that's what's, that, that's what's interesting uh, to me about We Are Star Children is it's actually my first band band. So all the other stuff was like me playing by myself in Spain or me playing with a weird off-kilter thing. I was a flute player for a new grass band in, in Boulder, Colorado when I lived there. But that was more like a David Grismondy kind of like jam, sort of like noodle around. I still didn't really understand theory at the time. I just had energy and had, you know, and enjoyed performing. And we had great gigs. We played decent-sized shows. Uh, but um, what was kind of uh, interesting was... Uh, 
coming to Charlottesville, I saw my aspirational peers became like legitimate bands, like great, like I call them train hopper bands, right? Going to see Jim Wave and like, what is that? Or like coming here, you know, it's just seeing like huge national acts come through town and bringing like a level, a level of love to, of music, but still totally wild. You I know, think that's one of my favorite things about Charlottesville. And I, I moved here in 2001 mainly to, to, to raise my family here and to teach. But one of my, what I discovered soon to be my favorite thing about Charlottesville is that it is this small town that has this very close knit uh, sort of interwoven music community here that feeds off of each other yeah. that doesn't necessarily have the great aspirations of we're moving to New York or we're going to LA or Nashville. we're going to be big. It's like yeah. we, the, the music community here makes music for the community here. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I, and I love that, but at the same time, it's a big enough town, a college town that like, you know, we get, major bands we get wilco at yeah. the pavilion you know we get those bands that come here right. um and perform f for us you know which yeah. is just phenomenal and it has really become something that i've loved about this town just the fact that i you know when i came up with this idea i'm like okay i need like i need to come up with like you know eight ten local songwriters that would come in to do this and i had a list of 25 before i even started writing it down just because yeah. there's so many great people here uh talented people here and people who want to share and give back to the community and and mm -hmm. be a part of of the next generation that's coming um which is a great segue into my my final couple of questions but i'm going to pause and grab a couple more beers out of the mini fridge let's do it cracked uh back to the conversation and i guess we're kind of coming to this this last uh this last thought or the last kind of reflection that 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 i want to kind of go through with you is, is this idea of what kids are going through today um and and what you see as an artist uh also as an educator as a parent uh from from kids now and and the things that make you hopeful for them the things that excite you about uh about the next generation of young artists but also maybe the things that cause some concern or the things that you worry about for for, for younger people today um what are your thoughts about the next the, the, the coming generation i you know and i i hate to start off uh you know and I, I don't want to be pessimistic at all like i believe in childhood i trust in children i believe you know in in uh not through this a podcast, but uh, you as a friend, Trevor, know me as someone who's very child-centered and believes in childhood. Uh, but there's a aspect of mysticism in music that's lost and that I, I'm worried is unrealized uh, in the environment that we've uh, provided them. Um, I remember early, like, rainbow gatherings I've gone to. This was, like, before Burning Man, right? Where you could just go crazy and just be the weirdest version of yourself imaginable. And none of it went on record. 
None of it was archived, right? You could just go off, right? And I think kids need a safe sandbox to be as weird as humanly possible. I remember uh, just, you know, uh, being with a friend, jamming, and just getting as weird as humanly possible, and that being a, a, a conduit, a, a gateway to the performative aspects of the work. Are our children, do they feel safe enough to be as weird as they uh, maybe feel deep down, maybe as they're called to be, maybe as they're supposed to be, to usher in the level? Look at, look at, look at some of the writers, Sturgill Simpson. You, you really think he didn't go through a period of time where that dude was just like, got weird. Weird enough to be as good of a writer and a performer as he is. So I worry, again, I believe in childhood, but I worry that we haven't given them enough time and space to be as truly weird as they need to be to become the next opulent, like Feist. Like, right? Like, take an artist like Feist. You know she got weird up in Canada, right? But what if everything she did at all those potlucks, at all those places where I got to jam, those drum circles where I got to find new territory on the flute. What if you didn't, what if you the whole time were worried about how you looked? God, I can't even imagine that. I can't, I don't want that for my boys. I mean, God, if there was a video of every time I made an ass of myself oh when I was my in high God. school. Can you imagine I'd if you could go back and look at my face in public? No, <laughs> no. We're so lucky that we never had that published. Yeah. And I honestly think like, so even whether it was even me dancing at a show, there were you know bands in high school that I would go to. I'm so glad there were no cameras in the audience, or maybe my early uh, dead or uh, shows, or you know going to see like a hardcore band and uh, dancing, moshing. Like I was unselfconscious, and this is not Trevor. Like I walked up the hill both ways to school. Like I'm not trying to be like nostalgic about uh, way it was for me. I'm trying to understand how technology affects art, mm -hmm. and does the level of publication, well, one, it accelerates the, our children's ability to write a great song and to publish it on a global stage. Right. But does it also inhibit their ability to get weird, to make mistakes, right. and to go hard in a way that lacks a level of self-consciousness? I, th I think you've got people who are willing to publish their lives, you know, and they're willing to have everything be shown. But there's a, I promise you, and, I, and I'm a little bit this way. There's a level of weird I'm not ready to bring to certain environments because right. I know it's going to be on, online. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that might inhibit my artistic growth. Um, I heard recently, uh, I can't remember where it was. I was trying to tell my wife earlier today about it, um, that an artist should never tell their own story. Our only job is to write. Mm -hmm. Our only job is to play. Our only job is to get weird. And what if I was more encumbered as a teenager about telling my story rather than just go to that A minor chord right. and just like dig in right. and feel what it feels like to jam and to be weird on these open-ended songs that have no end point, right? right? What right. if I was worried about the way I looked the whole time? I wasn't worried. No one was going to photograph it. I don't care what I looked like. Right. It's not also, about that at and all. And also like that, that, that level of uh, 
the emulation, you know, I want to sound like this person. Yeah. I want to write like this person. Not a part of it at I, all. And, and, and that was not a part of, I mean, obviously we all, you know, when I was a kid, you know, we all wanted to be John Bonham or Jimmy Page or, you know, so there was a, a certain level of emulation, but I couldn't, you know, I couldn't come home and record a song that I wrote and then have it have a, a thousand people listening to it 15 minutes later. Yeah. Like there was, it wasn't even an option. Thank yeah. God, because it would have been awful. Right. Uh, so I think that, so there, that's the, the upside is that these, you know, the kids, these kids today, these, you know, they have the capacity uh, to produce and create at a level that we never did. And I think there are many, I mean, I think of Billie Eilish off the top of my head, who, who's, who, her, she and her brother um, have this amazing capacity for production, and they and they they write interesting songs, and they they uh, they make really really interesting art. But but she's that special one. How many other kids are being squashed by the fact that they they're, they're putting stuff out there, and the feedback they're getting is I mean, less they, than positive. And they were they were able to navigate a SoundCloud ecosystem that worked. Right? right, early, like right. okay, I get SoundCloud, I can publish my work, I can I can watch the hits roll in. Right, I can right? market myself. I can market myself, and I don't. I think they still didn't. They, to my understanding, was that they didn't. They weren't obsessed with telling their own story. They were true artists, but they're also outliers. And I think about all our kids. I mean, I've seen kids freestyle rap in hallways, right? No cameras on them, mm -hmm. and it's cool. Yeah, like I want teenagers to feel like they have a safe place to be themselves. And, uh, you know, I think that we're talking about a lot of value added uh, with uh, children today. I think about our Charlottesville teenagers. You're growing up in a town where you can just go see John Durth, like on a Wednesday night, right? right. You know, now that the pandemic's over, you can just go see him. Like, that, what does that do to the, the pond is big enough and you're talented enough and you can, you know, you've got enough... Uh, peers through the MRC. That's our music resource center where you can actually go and see teenagers who are just a little better than you. Just like I'm, I'm sharing with you, Trevor, like just that, that rock band that's just the next level up. And then you get weird on your own, right? But God damn, I mean, if I had a phone in those tubes when I was trying to play the, uh, when I had those moments playing traverse flute, if I was worried about recording it, or if I was worried about the way I looked in those tubes, I promise you, I would have never had those moments where the sound literally rattled my skull and I felt bigger than I was. I was, a, I was, a 14, 15, I was 15, 15 years old and I, in those moments, felt like the world was unimaginably bigger than I was because I, I had a feeling where like, literally the vibrations made my, my head feel bigger than the actual physical space it took up. It was crazy. Um, and, 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 and I would have, I, I, I believe sincerely in what you said at the beginning of the podcast, I'm a technology, uh, what is it? The assistant director for technology integration. I work for the betterment of childhood and the integration of technology. And I believe sincerely that it, there, there's a way in which our children are being affected that may make it harder to get weird in a way that can help you become a fully self-actualized artist. I, I, I believe that sincerely. That's a somber note to end this on, kind of. I, I, I'm, of. I'm feeling pumped, man. I don't, I don't think it's I don't think it's somber at all. I, I, it's the first time I've disagreed with you this whole entire interview. <laughs> well, I, I I think that because I have the I share some of the same concerns that I do see uh, 
a lot of emphasis being put on the, the, the technique, the technological aspect of it. And again, kids who don't have uh, the space, as you mentioned, or, or don't create for themselves the space or don't have schools that create for them the space to just be weird uh, without putting a value judgment on things that, you know, this art is good. This art, not so much, right? That that all art is good when it comes authentically from your heart and from your spirit. Uh, that, that that people who put value on the work that you produce, on the art that you make, art should be no concern of yours when you're 15 or 16. Yeah. Um, I know for a, a while, and I and I and I, it's not that I don't understand the importance of entrepreneurship. Because particularly now in our economy, uh, you know, entrepreneurship is more important than it's than it's ever been. Um, but there was a period of time not too long ago when this idea of entrepreneurship was introduced into arts and music classes, uh, that it became sort of this underlying this underlying message that we were sending that like you've got to be figure out how to make Start money website, doing this yeah e-commerce this whole thing right how are you gonna how are you gonna get the number of graphic hits? design becomes like a pathway to professionalism rather than just an expression of self exactly and yeah. and and that's what kind of gave gave me the, the the pause at the same time though and I'm and I'm and I have the benefit of of teaching creative artistic kids. Um, the kids who are weird, the kids like yourself, the, the kid that you were, yeah. there's no technology that's going to stop them from being weird. Um, I see kids that are, you know, giving them a, I worry about giving them a camera because I'm not sure yeah. what they're going to do yeah. with it. But those are the kids I feel really good about because yeah. they're going to do stuff that like I wouldn't have thought of yeah. or that I might not even approve of. But they're going to push those limits and they're going to get weird and they're going to do interesting things. And they're the ones who give me the, the optimism because sure. the technology, it just gets you there faster. But it doesn't make your art any better. What yeah. makes your art better is your willingness to be vulnerable and to yeah. try things that you don't know whether or not they're going to work. Uh, and to then to record them and to delete them if it's not what you wanted and to, to do it again. So maybe, maybe it's about explicit instruction to our young artists where we say to them, let's, 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 let's not publish this. Why don't you go in this room and why don't you take an hour to just get as weird as you can? And, and you know, it's almost like us, Trevor, uh, acknowledging the world they're in and saying, you know what? I know you could publish this. But what if you just took some time? Everything you're about to do is going to be destroyed, and it's not going to it's not going to exist after you're done. I just, as 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 a caring adult, someone who's kind of been a teenager, I I want you to go in there and just just play for an hour. You know, and maybe we need to think about engineering time mm -hmm. for them right. with this understanding. Right. So we're not victims to this. That's maybe why it was. Uh, little dower. It's not, we're not victims to this. We're educators. We are advocates for children. Um, I know not everyone on this podcast is going to be a teacher, but you know, Trevor, I'm, you know, I, I acknowledge the fact that you build environments where kids get to write and get to play and get to be weird. So maybe we need to go into it with an understanding of the power of these tools and saying, you know what? We don't, we don't, everything you're about to do is for you. Right. It's not for the world. Right. Yeah. Not everything has to be public. No. All right, so you're gonna play a song for us. Tell us a little bit about it. Oh my God! Okay, so um, 
this was, um, you know, I really wasn't, again, I didn't want to do something that was really conventional at all. And I tried to emerge from this place of improvisation into an actual song structure. So when I uh, wrote it, I actually just counted <laughs> the chorus. So the chorus uh, is the most simple lyrics I've ever written. One, two, three, four, five, one. That's the chorus. Uh, and it's, you know, maybe in my um, more experienced self, having written many more songs since then, I look back and think that it's a bit derivative to just write the chorus in numbers. But melodically, it had the work that I wanted it to do. And I also uh, wanted to, uh, the verses needed to tell a poem, you know? And so it was like a poem and a melody and a level of, uh, I, I started to find this type of finger picking that was really exciting to me. So if anything, it's like a, a simple dollop of my first foyer into being weird and writing actual songs that had a structure. So yeah, here it is, four five. I only want a piece of you Love so peculiar It's all about your energy I never meant to conquer you Just put myself between the dashboard and the screen Four, five, one, two, three, four, five, one There's always been peace There's always been fire Ten thousand people in the street But you're wondering why And now it is she Who lights up the sky yeah. At first she couldn't give a care And now she is the universe one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, one. But this is the time to call back the horses and the hounds to light up the ages with amphetamine, taking the sights and the sounds. The city is wicked The country's so cruel And the preacher found a garden And the sinner built a school One, two, three, four, five One, two, three, four, five, one Well, lyrically, thematically, it fits with everything that we've been talking about and uh and i i love it and i appreciate it and i appreciate you so much for for coming by and being the first guest on the noises down the hall podcast and it was interesting too i just want to mention that you talked about taking that flute from the band room out into the hall and making weird noises and the title of this podcast noises down the oh hall is God. exactly what i'm talking about that wow. when you hear that 
horrible, crazy noise that's happening down the hall from your classroom or down the hall from your bedroom if you're at home. Sure. That 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 noise may be an artist being born, uh, and and wow. we should encourage that noise and and uh, keep that noise going. So because it might end up uh, that noise might end up turning into Gene Osborne. Uh, so thanks again, Gene, for for coming in and being a part of this. Never thank you. I had a great time. find out more about when and where you can see We Are Star Children, check out the We Are Star Children Facebook page. You can also find all of their music on Spotify, iTunes, or any streaming service. And if you'd like to see a video of Gene's performance here in the underground, check out the Noises Down the Hall podcast website, noisesdownthehall.com. Thanks. See you next time. <laughs>